I'm happy to uh, introduce tonight's interviewer, Francis Anderton. Francis Anderton is the host of DNA, Design and Architecture, aired monthly on 89.9 KCRW and KCRW.com. She's also producer of KCRW's national and local current affairs shows, To the Point and Which Way LA, both hosted by Warren Olney. Ms. Anderton is also an LA editor for Dwell Magazine. She is currently co-curator of the California Design Biennial to open at the Pasadena Museum of California Art on July 18th. Ms. Anderton is also author or editor of several books, including her latest, A5, Los Angeles. Please give a warm welcome to our friend, Frances Anderton. This is really an amazing audience, which is all credit to Zocalo, the most professional non-profit group that um, puts these things together. It's really, really exciting to be part of it. I also think it's so L.A. that the public square is inside a museum where we're surrounded by cars. <laughs> I'm sure you already thought that. It's now my privilege to introduce Michael, who's really the voice that you've come to hear. Um, I hope you're all familiar with, with his work, and if you are not, I'll just run through a few of his projects. Michael is really one of the most prominent, important Los Angeles architects whose work is both notable here and he's done many projects outside of LA that warrant attention, one of them being MoMA Queens. You've probably, many of you are familiar with that project, but what, what Michael's done, and this is what we're going to be talking about tonight, is that his work encompasses a very wide range. Um, top of the line residences for clients like Mike Ovitz and Larry Pittman and Rory uh, Dowell, and right to the inner city arts, wonderful arts school for the underserved communities in downtown Los Angeles. Skid Row Housing Trust's new Carver Apartments. He's also recently done the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Administration Building, Hammer Museum's Billy Wilder Theatre, and many other projects. He's won numerous awards, probably, in my view, with one of the most important awards being one called the Rudy Bruner Foundation's Award. In his case, he got the Gold Medal for Urban Excellence. And if any of you are familiar with award contests, many of them are rather like beauty contests. Basically, the jury looks, which is largely selected from, from, from among architects, the jury looks at a bunch of rather fabulous pictures of a building and then assesses it based largely on aesthetics because they don't really go and visit the buildings. But the Rudy Bruner Award is, really stands out for being one where it, the organisation spends months assessing the worth of a building for multiple angles, including its architectural form and aesthetic power, but also the way it has impacted the neighbourhood, the, the, the appreciation by the users, the clients' expectations and how it met those, and on and on and on, the, and the, 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 whether or not it had a sort of catalytic effect on the urban fabric. So for Michael to get that award is really, really a feather in his cap. Um, his designs have been featured in m numerous national and international publications, and he's had his work exhibited at many prestigious venues, including MoMA, where he also built for them, as, and also the Cooper Hewitt Design, National Design Museum, the International Architecture Exhibition at the Venice Biennale, and um, LACMA, so, um, actually MOCA, sorry. Michael, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> On to our topic of tonight, is good architecture a luxury? 
Um, it's a very interesting question, and any of you that read the paragraph on Zuckerlow's website sort of describing what was the purpose of the conversation tonight might have noticed that it, it contained references to the sort of star architecture culture and this notion that there's architects out there who are kind of the, the egomaniacs designing uh, costly buildings that are just in service to their own egomaniacal needs, um, while at the other end of the spectrum are the good guys, the people designing housing for the poor. And I just, I just want to start the evening by correcting any sort of misimpression in terms of sort of what, what, what architects' values are. Architects, I think it's fair to say, on the one hand, are total control freaks who would design absolutely anything that was put that they were given a chance to design. So that one thing is true. But also, architects have, have strong egos, but they also have strong ideals. And the architectural education is rooted in the Bauhaus movement. Most architecture schools really teach within the modern tradition, modernist tradition, um, that very much believes in the role of the architect as someone who improves people's lives and creates aspirational buildings, whether they're at the lowest end of the economic scale or the highest. And so um, I think you'd find that many a so-called star architect would be equally happy and challenged designing um, how, projects that's, that serve the less affluent. Do you think that's, that's true, Michael? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do think that's true. I think many architects, certainly my generation uh, of architects and uh, generations who are a little bit ahead of me and uh, generations of architects that are just uh, uh, starting to practice at this point, come from a culture. I think architectural education uh, begins with a culture, as you mentioned, that comes out of, to a large extent, of the Bauhaus, but modernism as a whole. And uh, I had always felt that in that teaching, in that, that ethical beginning to the way that we were taught to think about architect, architecture's role in culture, that architecture wasn't in the service of, of uh, one particular group, socio or economic group, but was uh, a, a very powerful agent, uh, cultural and social agent, and um, had the ability to cross boundaries. In fact, the crossing of boundaries was one of the goals because it was in that it was in that transgressing of of the traditional social boundaries that you had the potential to demonstrate the uh, capacity of of architecture to to be that real agent to uh, to be involved in in progressive ideas, uh, in progress uh, as a whole, which I think is fundamental or should be fundamental to the way that we think about our cultural work, uh, uh, socially, as a whole. Right, and so to the, to the question of the evening, which I think was very well put by Zocler, is good architecture a luxury? Then that question becomes one of, if one, if one understands that, 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 architect, that an architect's role is to provide good architecture for whoever needs it, then the question is, can it be provided? Right. That then it becomes a question of, I presume, budget and other considerations that come into play when um, when 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 architecture is um, is is to be provided. Because I think we all know that architecture, or or, or, or let's say most buildings, are not designed by architects. Mm -hmm. 
most buildings, that it's a very small percentage of buildings that actually get designed by architects. That's, that's right. Right, I think it's about 2%. <laughs> and, then, and then within that 2%, there's a question of how, yeah. how many of those buildings rise to the level of architecture. Um, there are a number of, I think, uh, interesting points in that, uh, in what, the way you just framed that question. And, and one of those uh, points, I think, is, is the assumption that architecture that architects uh, necessarily automatically make good design or don't make good design. And I, I don't think that that's, because an architect is involved, doesn't necessarily make a building great or bad. Uh, that there are many other factors that go into that. And it is true that architects are not involved in the wide range of building that we see out there. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean either that architects have to be involved in the, all of those things. Uh, nor does the, does the general context of the city have to be bad because of, of the lack of architects. And I think that that, that gets at a larger social and, and cultural question uh, that has to do with the way, um, as a city, as a region, we value design or don't value uh, uh, certain qualities, certain uh, qualities that, 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 that building and architecture uh, provides. So... Yes, you're right. Architects would take on everything they can, but we. But, but you also know that that's that's not completely possible. Also, the way that that I think Zocalo framed that question about the difference between luxury and good design. Um, I thought about that when they first framed that question as uh, as a question whether I wanted to be involved in this talk or not. And I think um, in, in both of those cases, it sets up a kind of uh, binary equation in which you, you only have one or the other. It seems to me that if you look at, at both, of those, the, both of those sides, what is luxury, what is good design, in most cases, it, uh, I think it comes down to a kind of quality of thinking, a kind of quality of approach. And while architects have the ability to produce, I think, and are trained to produce aesthetically uh, useful um, and important buildings. I think what architecture brings to the equation even more so is a way of thinking, a kind of design intelligence, a way of, of taking on the problem. If you think of it in that way, then the question of, of issues like budget are framed in a different way. Right. It's no longer a question of, do we have enough money to do this project or not? I can guarantee you, no matter what side of the equation I'm working on at any given moment in the office, whether it's um, on the, the, the expensive projects, or or the, the budget is, is always an issue. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you think you have. Budget is always an issue, and it's really a question of how you you think about and, and, and use that and deploy that, that, that budget in a smart, intelligent, and precise way. And I think that's one of the things that has been so uh, important to my practice and the people who I work with in the office, um, an incredible group of collaborators uh, who work with me in the office, that's been so important about the Skid Row projects is that it has forced us to... Um, think very precisely about where uh, those resources are going to go and uh, to evaluate what, what, architecture, uh, what architecture is, what stands for architecture. And that becomes a big question in those projects because 
uh, in, in other projects where maybe you have uh, a broader and, and, uh, and more significant set of financial resources, uh, that can be spread across that question. And architecture might exist in, in many different components of a building, some of those essential, maybe some of those less essential, but, um, but still, um, uh, still something you're quite interested in. In, in the projects that we've been, been doing in, in the inner city, uh, I think we have had to be uh, much more again, much more precise, much more focused, to, to imagine what is fundamental to architecture. And that doesn't mean it's better or worse than any of the other things that we're making, but I think it, it, it refines and, well, first questions, and then refines the approach that you bring uh, to those projects. I think it's one of, the, when we first started to do these, I've been interested in these projects for very, really from the very beginning. Inner City Arts was the very first project that I was involved in. Starting in about 1993. Uh, yes, yes, exactly, 1993. And I was working um, uh, together with some friends, uh, Leo Marmel and Ron Redziner, on, on, on the beginnings of that project. And one of the things uh, that grew out of that, were, uh, doing that work, was uh, for me a deep interest in how these projects were not just about the specific, uh, in that case, uh, uh, less privileged community that it was serving, but it was really a question about the city as a whole and, and what the future of the city potentially was, uh, how architecture could be leveraged in that conversation, and how buildings also had a responsibility to a larger idea about, about urbanism in the city. And as we started to, or really I started to accept other projects, uh, some of the Skid Row projects for uh, permanent supportive ho housing for some people who were formerly homeless. I thought that it was, I was gonna have to convince everybody in the office to work on these projects because we had these other projects that were more traditionally considered fancy in architecture terms. And then I was interested as well in doing projects that were uh, less, um, less glamorous, or at least appeared to be less glamorous. And the thing that I was surprised with was that, especially um, with many of the younger people in the office, that they were clamoring to be on these projects. They were, re they were, they were negotiating and politicking to be uh, a part of these projects. And at first I couldn't understand exactly why, but I realized that uh, over time that it was because these projects do deal with architecture at such a fundamental right. level. And, it, and it, it taps into that uh, line of thinking and belief and optimism and sense of potential progress that you're first invested in or with uh, as, as a student in as architecture. A, yeah, and it that, creates that, that circuit of that connection. Absolutely. No, there was a sense at architecture school instilled in you that architecture can change the world. Right. And you leave architecture school and it's, and it's somewhat a bit of a shock to find that architects are rather low on the totem pole and don't really get to change the world. And in yeah. fact, I remember very distinctly when you started working on inner city arts before it even when it was still an idea and you'd got together, I think, with some philanthropists and, yeah. and, it, and it followed on from the um, civil unrest of 1992, which really was a cathartic moment for a lot of architects, many of whom were doing the luxury projects, yeah. the houses in Brentwood yeah. for the affluent clients. And the civil unrest happened and that sense of there was something 
that was that was that was not well in 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 Denmark. I've got the I've paraphrased it all wrong. Somebody more literary, correct me, please. But anyway, there was this sense that 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 there was a deep inequity in Los Angeles, and architects were so keen to step into the breach and be part of the the, the, the problem solving. And it was, and and I, and I think inner city arts grew from that point. Absolutely, and that very was exactly, much expressed. That was exactly the moment. Right, and um, and I think we're seeing the same now in this um, in the in the in the in the sort of waning years of the of the of the boom as we got nearer and nearer to the crash. There was growing sense of discomfort within the architecture community that. On the face of it, all this money was being thrown at McMansions and towers in Dubai, and that there was a whole underclass that was being forgotten in all of this. And I don't think architects actually are guilty of having ever forgotten the underclass, but I think there was, there has been in recent months, if not years, the same feeling as there was after the unrest of that feeling of we have to do something about the inequity. But anyway, back to this term luxury. It's an interesting term because obviously it has two meanings. What you have just articulated, you mean luxury to mean equality of thinking. Obviously luxury is this car over there. Generally, luxury is very, very swanky high-end design, the sort of, the sort you, when you're designing for Mike Ovitz, you can give him both. You can give him quality of thinking and you can give him luxury in that traditional sense. It's true, but, but I, I think that often that gets, that gets conflated uh, materially. Uh, and uh, that many times when we think of luxury, we make the mistake that that has, that has a, uh, a one-to-one equation with uh, the, the supposed qualities of, of, of the materials, for instance, in architecture of the building. But I think that you can often find in, 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 in buildings that are, are supposedly meant to be luxury buildings, uh, maybe the materials, uh, at least at first appearance, seem uh, extraordinary, um, certainly extremely expensive. But they're put together horribly, right. and the thinking that that goes along with that is uh, is so impoverished that uh, the materials and the way that they're put together and the kinds of thinking that go into it doesn't have the ability to endure. So I do think one of those um, one of the characteristics potentially of of what luxury might mean in a more generous way to a culture as uh, as a whole, as opposed to a specific individual. Is is to imagine what endures, and I think, uh, in that sense, that 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 idea of of significant thinking, of of uh, deep focus and and belief in a set of a set of ideas uh, that are able to continue to resonate and and communicate something about both our culture, its connection to the history of architecture, and to potentially. Uh, 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 have an idea about what the future might be. Uh, that, as, an, uh, as, as a quality of an enduring artifact, uh, is, I think, truly luxurious at the level of culture as a whole. And that seems to me to be a way of, of uh, thinking about, one way of thinking about moving between these different worlds and not saying that, uh, not getting into the easy equations that one is good or one is bad, but to think about their relationship to a much broader home. So to anyone in the audience who might not have seen Inner City Arts or some of the Skid Row housing projects, just, just talk about how you applied quality of thinking to those projects. They were tight budgets. How did you realize 
projects that really are of, of a very high quality yeah. well, within those constraints? First, I do actually believe architecture can change the world. I still believe that. Uh, the difference Just is... Just not the entire well, world. <laughs> at, one fell, at one fell swoop. I think it is a question of, yeah. of time that often, <laughs> often when you think about, about that idea, it's that uh, it happens immediately. And I think as a part of that, uh, that question, you need to introduce time and understand that uh, iterative projects taken as a whole over time have the ability to have just as transformative right. of, uh, of an effect. And I believe that deeply. And that is a place that architecture has the capacity to make that kind of significant change. I got involved at Inner City Arts because at the time I was friends um, with uh, Peter Sellers and who was running the... The director, the, director, the theater director. Who was running the Los Angeles Festival. And it was the second time he was running the festival and he had an idea, um, like Peter tends to have, of uh, taking the festival into more far-flung areas of the city that most people would not, who were traditional consumers of, of higher culture, would not have, have traditionally seen, would not have, have uh, been a part of. And that idea was very interesting to me because what it said was that you could maybe leverage uh, you could leverage uh, uh, cultural ideas to remake the map of the city as a whole. And I've always been interested in thinking about urbanism also as the kind of map, a, a kind of uh, web of, of relationships and interrelationships that's, that's more fluid, that is more elastic, and that can change over time. And maybe that's what we're working on more than anything. And it was... Uh, then the civil unrest happened, the, the, the riots happened, and the city blew itself apart. And I was one of those architects um, who was at that time relatively new to the city, but who had made Los Angeles very much an adopted city. I, I wanted to be here and to see the city rip itself apart and to do that kind of uh, damage to the city, uh, the city that I had, had um, fallen in love with, was devastating. And in those conversations with Peter, um, I was continuing to cajole him um, because I was being, uh, kind of prickly um, to go further, to move the festival. It was the time to move the festival even more farther, uh, farther afield. The reason for that was to try to rethink uh, the role of, again, these these institutions in a place like Skid Row, which uh, out of that relationship came uh, a conversation with a group of philanthropists and artists, uh, Bob Bates and Erwin Jaeger, um, most importantly. And uh, the idea was to produce this art school in the middle of Skid Row, not to try to turn children into fantastic artists. If, if that happened, that was a great byproduct. But because art had the possibility of being, they believed, a kind of bridge between the kids' daily experience, which was uh, horrible, and, um, and, uh, and some idea of, of hope for their future, that it was a way of uh, negotiating between those two things and to give them a form of, of expression. Out of that, I thought that the architecture right from the beginning had had a, a series of responsibilities. One was to create 
the right kind of space for that, the, to make studio spaces, art spaces, in this case, painting studio, drama studio, music studio, that had all of the functional integrity and pragmatic integrity that you need for that kind of building. But secondly, I was interested in uh, seeing if, I had an idea that the architecture could stand in as a microcosm for, um, for a city that the building itself could be thought of as uh, a similar um, organization uh, as a neighborhood surrounding well, a, ki a kind of Zocalo, a kind of, a kind of common space. And uh, I, I started to think of, of that building not so much as one singular building, but a series of individual parts, each representing those different disciplines, in which you, as a student, had a responsibility to your particular discipline, but you were organized around this larger, um, this larger common space that you had an even greater responsibility to. And so you were constantly moving between the specifics of your individual enterprise and the dynamic of the collective whole. To do that, we were working with an existing building, an empty parking lot, uh, and then trying to build new construction in and, and through that. What, what, in the actual making of the work, it was less about trying to produce the architecture out of, out of those fancy materials, out of uh, materials that communicated a kind of um, uh, more commonly accepted sense of luxury or presence. But I was interested in whether you could use the materials that we found in and around that part of Skid Row. And to use them in a way where the details of uh, of raw wood, uh, the details of, of exposed fasteners, the details of, of the large uh, roll-up doors that you normally see on gas stations, like a Shell station or an Arco station, um, to use very simple but uh, inexpensive flooring, to use uh, this asphalt tile which was normally used on the floors of, of uh, the, the post offices and to use that on the wall because it had a very beautiful, uh, beautiful texture to it. I felt that if you use those materials that the, the kids and their families and their teachers walked by every day in the city and said, that's, you know, we live in a, in a, in a place of incredible ugliness, but you could transcend that and use those materials in a way that, that had a different level of presence because of the way you thought about their um, uh, relationships the way one was next to another, that you composed palettes in a more uh, creative or artistic uh, way, uh, that you put materials that were not normally um, seen on the wall, on the wall in a way that, uh, that changed people's perceptions of, of those materials, that you could say something about the the neighborhood that they were living in, that it wasn't about whether the materials were luxurious, expensive or not. It was the way that we used those materials that had everything to do with the sensibility that they communicated. That's something I think architecture continues to possess, is the ability to uh, take raw material and to find a way to make it speak culturally. Uh, and um, if you do that well, I think it has the ability to endure in the way that we talked about just a little while ago. And at this point, I think perhaps it's worth mentioning that 
in a past life, you worked at a very high level for Frank Gehry. Right. And I think it's fair to say that Frank Gehry very much contributed to this idea of uh, the reusing of, 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 of banal materials in a way that changed people's perception right. of them and, 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 and changed the meaning of, 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 of quali surface quality or luxury. But back to inner city arts, the other, I guess, sort of um, formal aspect of the project is that, um, or the, or the, um, the aesthetic aspect of the project that gives it this luxury on a, on a very low budget is the um, is the forms that you yeah. chose to make and the, the forms and then and then the, the the pure white you know the the inexpensive white paint yeah. but used in such a way on those forms that that the children have got to be imbued with a kind of I don't know whether this sounds elitist or snobby but there's a sort of sophistication yeah. you know yeah. to those shapes and there's a sort of I think I think you always wanted there to be a kind of didactic. No, absolutely, absolutely. To those, and to I think it's I think it's important, and that is that's also something that has I think characterized the work that we have been doing, um, uh, whether it's the again the projects for the housing trust or for inner city arts, that uh, that architecture uh, should not you, you can't approach those projects because they're seen as being in places that architecture normally doesn't exist um, or because the budgets don't necessarily allow uh, you to uh, produce architecture in the, or at least people's perception is that you wouldn't be able to produce architecture in, uh, in, in any kind of viable way. I think that's, I think that's wrong. I think that, um, I think that uh, the point there is to find ways to produce those forms and architecture Using all of the all of your capacities, your facilities, your tools, um, in a in a way that is just as strong, is just as formally uh, uh, considered intense, just as physically present, just as iconographic as any of the projects uh, in the the more um, iconic, identifiable parts of the city. I think in those neighborhoods. In many ways, it's it's the most important to produce uh, architecture that is um, that is 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 significant and is is iconic and is identifiable. And that's the place where I think this whole debate about signature architecture has, in some ways, gone awry. I think there is nothing. I think culture needs signature buildings. I think culture needs uh, iconic uh, iconic buildings. Uh, it's a, it's always a question of in what service though that iconography is made, right. and here uh, it's at, at a place like Inner City Arts. It's it's clearly trying to say that this organization, these children, this neighborhood, is emphatically present in the city, in a city that has done everything it can to try to um, uh, produce an, an amnesia about that that district, that part of the city. In the same way, we found a similar thing with um, the projects, the permanent supportive housing projects that we've been doing for Skid Row, where I think a lot of people believe that it would be best to make uh, housing projects that somehow receded into, into the background um, for people who uh, have been so exposed and so present on the street. Uh, and we debated that uh, a great deal. But instead, what we have found is that uh, uh, the important component there, the, the, maybe the most important 
equation, personal, personal equation that the people who live in those buildings have with the building is that it is identifiable. There's a, a, a manifest pride in being able to say, I, in fact, live there. And that uh, somebody has produced a place uh, that values my presence in the city, certainly uh, in, in, in this territory. And I think that's something that, um, that, that says that that, uh, that level of architecture, that level of presence and identity is, is extremely important in, in the overall social equation. In something like inner city arts, the whiteness of that building in that context uh, was possibly the most radical architectural gesture we could make. Um, even more important than the uh, sculptural effects of the forms, which I think are, are quite intensely sculptural in many cases. And that was trying to work at a number of, of levels, that white paint was trying to um, create uh, the ability for uh, the buildings to also produce a neutral background for the children's work, for what was produced there, but still allow the forms to read in a uh, significant, emphatic way. Uh, it was um, trying to produce a sense of deep optimism, which I think... Uh, in, in that context, it does. It literally becomes a, a, a kind of a beacon in, in that neighborhood. Well, it's a, it's a diamond in the rough, exactly. isn't it? It's, got, it's a gem. And then the other part of it was to see if um, was an experiment, which was that many of the people who lived in that neighborhood who were living very, very difficult lives, continue to live very difficult lives, would continually said that inner city art, that there's a value to inner city arts that seems to uh, strike them very deeply. And there's almost a, a, a collective protective sense about, about that place. And I was interested, in, and it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of an experiment that if that was truly the, the social compact with the, with the neighborhood, that a white building would then not be, it wouldn't be damaged, it wouldn't be graffitied, and that, that, was, that was the challenge, in a sense, to the neighborhood as a whole. And it's, it's been borne out. They've had absolutely no, no damage to the building. It continues to um, exist in its, in its uh, original state in that neighborhood. It now has other layers, which is glorious landscaping That's and right. graphics, right. which sort of offset the purity of the white, That's but right. also make really add to the sense of an oasis That's that the right. place has. Nancy Power uh, has been collaborating on the landscape for, for really since its inception. It's, it's turned into a kind of beautiful um, space. And Michael Hodgson, a uh, graphic designer, really took the challenge of making graphics and wayfinding not something that occurred at the level of building signage or numbers to rooms, but uh, tried to produce something at an urban scale as well. Right, right. Now, what about when you first embark on these projects and you meet the clients? I'm not sure whether you find them or they find you, but do you, do you find that the clients for some of these projects have themselves somewhat low expectations? Um, or are they, do they come to you because they understand the importance that of the, the, the role that architecture can make? That's, ch that, that's changing. I think when inner city arts began, I would say they had very high expectations. They just weren't about the architecture. Um, they, have, they have an incredible sense of themselves. They are uh, uh, in an, an extraordinary force uh, 
in, in education. But I don't think they necessarily understood. They had a, some members, Erwin Jaeger specifically, had an idea about what architecture could potentially do. But I, I think um, their imagining of it was was really at a much more pragmatic level. And I think that that's true of many institutions that are uh, growing to the level where they might necessarily need architecture. Or they might start, they, they've expanded to the level that they're even considering doing a building. Because many of those organizations start as, as real grassroots organizations, uh, a kind of bootstrap mentality that um, we'll make it on our own. We are, we are going to uh, deal with every problem that comes up in front of us and we're just going to keep marching along. We're going to duct tape the place together if we have to. Mm -hmm. uh, and everybody is everything. They're the plumber, they're the teacher, they're the baker, they're everything. Um, over time, that has changed. And I think uh, they were very quick to embrace the role of architecture in terms of the quality of the day-to-day -day experience that it provided, that the environment changed enormously and they could see the effect on the sense of presence um, that the children and their families had uh, in those buildings, that it, it changed the dynamic with, with education almost instantaneously. And from that moment on, I think they became uh, they became real believers in that and I think have continued to challenge myself in the office as an architect uh, all the way through the additional phases of that project because it's been, as you know, a three-phase a, a three project that we started in 93 and just finished and just opened the last phase last fall. The Skid Row projects, the housing trust projects were different. Uh, I don't know that they necessarily understood where an engagement with architecture at this level would take them, but they knew that they needed to change the way that they had, they had been working with architects um, and had done a number of very uh, sophisticated buildings in and around Skid Row over the years, but had uh, increasingly more just been, uh, uh, not just, but, but had been renovating uh, existing buildings, existing hotels uh, to house the homeless. But two important things changed. One was that they started to move the model from uh, really uh, an SRO model where they were providing beds on a nightly, weekly basis. It was just trying to get people off of the street to uh, believing in a different model that was emerging in that um, service community about permanent supportive housing. The idea that you needed to find a way for those members of the community to have a permanent home uh, in these buildings. And the, the real difference in that, one was that that meant that if you were going to be there permanently, you had to begin to think about how you would build a community in those buildings. It wasn't enough to just allow people to come and go as they pleased, but, but that one of the qualities might be if you could actually produce a community where people felt a stronger sense of what, what we all hope to feel uh, on a normal day-to-day -day basis. The second part of that was that... Uh, the supportive part, that's the permanent part, the supportive part was that the, as opposed to uh, the people who were living in these buildings going back out 
to see their caseworkers, which put them and their uh, mental health providers and their physical health providers, which put them back out onto the streets and really into a more troubling equation, that, uh, that they needed to bring the supportive component into the buildings themselves. And that created a whole social change to the program of the buildings, the spaces in the buildings. That was something that they were unaccustomed uh, with in that they knew they needed to invent a new model. And in fact, what they were looking for was a new typology, was, was, was a new paradigm, a new model, which is something that architecture and modernism uh, has been invested in uh, from its very beginnings, that architecture can can produce new typologies as the social dynamic, as the cultural dynamic shifts and changes over time. And in that way, architecture continues to be able to reinvent itself uh, to be a real partner with, um, with, the, uh, uh, with society as a whole. The last part of the real change was that that they as they built more and more of these projects, uh, in the beginning, they had a similar attitude. They were just trying to do a, a level of triage in, in that district of the city. But as they built more and more of these buildings, they were becoming, uh, they, were, they were starting to have an enormous effect urbanistically on, when we talked about the map of the city before, on the map of that, that area. And they could no longer, they realized, go about this without understanding that these buildings were having a, a significant overall effect on the uh, urban environment as well. And in that regard, they began to believe that they had a different responsibility, that their architecture needed to have a different responsibility in the way that it dealt with the city as a whole. And it was that new set of complexity or complexities that were real challenges for them and they believed that architecture had some role in that, that thinking. They didn't know what that was. They didn't know how that would manifest itself aesthetically, pragmatically, formally, but they knew that there was something in that. And I think uh, the work as it's continued uh, after the first one is, is continuing to really grow on uh, the thinking and the achievements that have been made as a, as a group as a whole with them from the first one. And, and each one has been iteratively, I think, more precise and more challenging to what the issues and the problems are for, for, for that community, but for building in the city as a whole. And in working on projects like that, do you, you said that some of the people who are living in some of the Skidrow housing projects really do appreciate the, the building that is recognizable, that it has a Absolutely. certain light. So, so do you, do you, do you, are, are they part of the, the client that you're doing? And we've been beat up for that, it? by the way. You know, we've been, because we beat up, for you, why are you building things uh, like that for the homeless community? There, been, Who's been beating you up? What kind of people? Uh, there have been many of, many of the people in the neighborhoods uh, oh. and the communities. And, and in fact, uh, many of the people who um, have been a part of that entire uh, social network of, of the homeless who have uh, a model in which you just try to produce uh, as inexpensive and as expedient a solution to creating uh, rooms as possible, I think have, have, have deeply questioned, not just us, but, but the housing trust as a whole, wondering 
why are you going to these lengths? The, uh, the problem is very fundamental and, and, um, and very specific and, 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 and this, is, this is an extra. This is, this is a kind of excess. This is a luxury. This is a luxury, exactly. This is, this is a luxury. So we're being accused of designing luxury uh, for a place that you would not normally associate. By right? people who are within the industry, as it were. Within the industry and also very much within, within the, the, the immediate communities, um, which is peculiar because you would expect that they would, people would want that kind of building in those, in those neighborhoods. But I think it's a, it also is challenging because it makes the homeless that much more present. Uh, uh, it makes it much less possible to imagine the the problem, the social social problem of the homeless is as uh, as an anonymous problem that you can you can uh, somehow hide away. These buildings don't allow that to happen. I suppose the next um, the next question that might come out of that, in terms of the um, in terms of the catalytic effect that these buildings are having, is to what extent the lives of the people who are now spending longer than a night in these buildings, to what extent might their lives really change in the long haul? Might they be able to leave the community of homelessness, however luxury it might now have become? I, I think it's um, the people who are there on a day-to-day -day basis working with that issue, the people at the Housing Trust, people at Inner City Arts, in many ways would be even much more qualified to answer that precisely. Um, there, there is a lot of work that's being done. Certainly, Inner City Arts has a long track record, track record now over the years, but uh, of monitoring, of monitor, the, monitoring the effect and, and the where the students have progressed, what kind of effect it has on the uh, the families, uh, the students. Uh, what's been interesting about about Inner, Inner City Arts is that while it wasn't started as a um, as a school to train artists per se. They, it's been around long enough now that those kids have grown up. And the, one of the reasons we've continued to expand inner city arts is that in the beginning it was just for elementary school kids. But those kids, um, they get bigger <laughs> and, and um, they turn into teenagers and they go to high school. And that need continues to grow. And many of those kids, in fact, do stay uh, now connected to inner city arts through a series of programs. And, and over the past two years, they have now seen a number of their students graduating and going on to college in disciplines in creative uh, industry, which is is just is unbelievable when you imagine that place. Right. But the real evidence is is more in the associated uh, increases that they have found in all of the children in their. Um, their progress and their test scores and, and uh, their abilities in other subjects. They have found that the collateral effect of inner city arts is, uh, is, is substantial and is, is identifiable. Um, so in that sense, it's the program uh, as much as the architecture and whatever role the architecture plays in that as an armature for that to take place, I think is important. But I, I think one of the things that does... Uh, differentiate maybe my generation or the, uh, the, the broad generation that I'm a part of and that I'm moving through architecture, the space of architecture with, and that's some people who are, um, who are older than I am and younger than I am, is that, and the difference between 
the modernists that we talked about. I do think that inherent in that, that, that initial conversation of, in those nascent conversations about modernism, there was a belief, because there was so much social change and upheaval at the time, that architecture could have, um, have enormous, far-reaching abilities to uh, really right social, uh, social problems. Uh, cultural problems, political problems, that, that architecture had the ability to create that kind of, of extraordinary change across um, the most deep and intractable uh, issues. And I, I don't believe that, that that's necessary. I don't believe that that's true. That, that doesn't change my belief that architecture can, in fact, um, make those, those kinds of changes that do, in fact, redirect uh, uh, our, our, our place in the world. I believe that strongly, but I think that we have to be very careful about what architecture's power is and, uh, our, and the architect's role in believing that we automatically, that architecture implicitly has uh, the problems to much more deeply seated, uh, deeply seated ills. But it does have the ability to, to get at, uh, in parallel, with other, uh, other groups and other organizations and other like-minded um, individuals. It does have the power to, uh, and can be leveraged in a way that uh, it, it, it can promote uh, significant, deep, and I think even more importantly, sustainable change. And that's maybe the difference, is that with all of these projects, when I think about them now, as much as I, as an architect, have a deep affection and deep uh, um, belief in what we've achieved in each one of those buildings individually, for me, it's the importance of those projects are really as a project as a whole. For me, all inner city arts and, and the work on Skid Row is a much larger project uh, taken as a whole that is really a project about the future of, of the city that we want to make. And each one of those buildings is an incremental uh, step in creating what may eventually, if, if in, in collaboration with many other people who are trying to make these kinds of changes, may in fact um, have the ability to uh, help this culture, this city, any contemporary city, find their way to that more uh, progressive and optimistic future that the modernists, I think, uh, envisioned maybe in a more um, singular way, surgical singular yes. way. The architect mentioned a friend of mine, Peter Sellers, as having a person who reached out to the farther community. And the next words you used were, I wanted him to do even more. What did you want Peter to do beside going out into the community? Uh, well, I want to preface that by saying I, th I think actually Peter was doing quite a bit. I, I think some of it was my own insolence that, that I was just trying to egg him on. If, if, uh, if Peter is nothing else, he is a, a, certainly a provocateur. And I felt like in our friendship that I needed to meet him at least halfway in, in, in that. Um, I, I just believed that that idea of, of, of taking what we think of as 
uh, of high culture and finding a way to push it into communities that that might n- never see that would also create the ability for people who would follow that culture, as often we inevitably do, to see areas of the city that uh, that we don't know really exists. I think one of the one of the characteristics of Los Angeles, one of the things that I think about a lot in terms of architecture is that uh, is the the that cities like Los Angeles. Uh, and I think it was one of the things that became absolutely clear during the civil unrest in the early 90s. We thought of the city as a multicultural city, but in fact what we realized was that there were a lot of cultures in the city, but they were in many cases completely separate. And that siloization of, uh, of cultures, which I think in some ways comes from a very suburban idea of building a city, that we, we exist as... as as our own individuals, our own ecosystems in and of, of themselves, disconnected to the, to the larger whole, has been uh, a, persu- a pervasive way in which uh, the city has, has continued to develop. And we've allowed it to happen. We've allowed it to happen by, for many reasons, whether it's because we don't feel comfortable, because we don't challenge ourselves, because leadership doesn't work across those boundaries. We've allowed for those boundaries to continue to exist. And I think that that is one of the characteristics of an unsustainable city. It's not just the resources that we continue to, to, to use when we talk about sustainability. That's, that's absolutely important. But I think that if, if you're really looking to a city that has any kind of potential future, culturally and socially, we have to find ways to begin to transgress those, those boundaries, whether they're real, like the 10 freeway, or implicit uh, uh, and psychological. And many times those are just as real. It seems that uh, organizations like inner city arts lend themselves to uh, the idea that architecture can have the kind of impact that you're talking about on the uh, community. Um, is it possible to convince retailers like Home Depot or Target with their big box models to kind of accept that idea as well and kind of understand their impacts on society and their neighborhoods and their communities? Uh, it is a, it's a very good question. Um, I'm not, uh, I think it possibly, I think possibly it is, but I think, I'm not sure uh, how much architecture can be the thing that initiates that conversation with, uh, with groups like that. Uh, I, I think many of the, of the commercial enterprises that you, you mentioned, I think commercial enterprise in general, I think to a large extent capitalism as a whole, is actually tends to be extremely responsive to, uh, to market uh, persuasions. Um, they may resist that, for, for as long as they possibly can. But when sentiment changes, very often uh, they, follow. They, they follow. And I think that conversation needs to continue to have in a much broader way, which, which includes politi- uh, political leadership as much as it, uh, it is a question for design and architecture. Architecture has uh, really the 
the reality of architecture is that it's very often late to the equation. As much as we try to be involved in the early conversations about projects, architecture is really uh, the thing that happens after a project has in some ways been invented or, or, or imagined. And at that point, it's challenging because the genie's out of the bottle and you're, you're trying to find a way to uh, uh, m massage its direction um, in a way that is, is productive and is, is positive. Um, architecture has had a role uh, in making those many of those kinds of projects at least perceived in a different way uh, less so recently but but in the 60s and the 70s there were architects like Robert Venturi who were working or firms like Site who were really trying to be as involved as they could in those in the realities, the messy realities of of, of commercial enterprise. Uh, it wasn't so much that they were involved in in the issues around um, urban culture, urban and social issues, but they were trying to at least reimagine what those big boxes were. And I think there was some fantastic things that came out of that. But I think really, in your question, is is uh, a, a criticism, I think a rightful criticism of what role those kinds of large enterprises have in the balance of, of our communities. And you can see where um, large uh, retailers like Walmart, for instance, have been kept out of certain communities. Other jurisdictions immediately adjacent to the cities that don't want them have opened the doors and uh, have welcomed them because of, of things like the tax base t and tax revenue and the, uh, the inexpensive jobs that come along with that. So I think that's a very important debate. It's a part of this larger question of what happens in the city. Architecture can have a role in that. Urban design can have a role in that. But I think uh, we need to continue to challenge leadership uh, and leadership's role in, in all cities, not just Los Angeles, but in, but in all cities, to make that uh, and to make urbanism and what we want our future to look like an important part of the visible agenda of, of the, uh, the political culture of our, of, of our cities. A lot of the whole big, big box development is tied to prop, right back to Prop 13. You know, cities needed a tax base right. and those big boxes right. provided it in this totally expedient way. And I doubt if planners or the local powers that be could impose any or wanted to impose any kind of design review restrictions. They just right. wanted those big boxes That's as right. fast as possible. But now we're seeing a very interesting phenomenon, which is the big boxes going kaplunk. Kaplui. I mean, in Glendale, the city of Glendale now is bringing in artists. They've hired a curator, an art curator, to come and curate these empty big boxes because right. they've right. got a, an empty downtown. So it is a really interesting problem as to what's going to happen to those spaces. But cities are obviously going to have to be thinking about the economic equation as well, well as the architecture one. Well, one other thing I will say that, that is an architecture or urban design component of, of that, that question, I think, and it's something we... Uh, I've been talking about and thinking about and, and working on uh, a great deal is that uh, increasingly I do think that contemporary cities and Los Angeles is, is a great example of, of this uh, are, are being challenged, are really starting to have to confront with, with uh, density for the first time ever. And, and there are many reasons for that, but I think 
uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the city has reached really the limits of not so much its ability to continuously physically sprawl, but the limits of of almost its psychological boundaries, beyond which you are no longer really a part of Los Angeles. And that is having an effect on the way that development is being uh, thought about in the city. You can see uh, downtown uh, having really transformed for the first time in a consequential and I think uh, long-term way, where there's been a a much greater level of, of development. I think when that happens, and continues to happen, and that's a, that's a long-term development in Los Angeles. But the important thing is that that is gonna to continue to put pressure on the, the more traditional models that we've come to expect in a city like Los Angeles, uh, certainly around transportation, but around those types of, of commercial enterprises which take enormous uh, parts of the city and are really based on on car culture. And that dynamic is going to continue to change. It's going to take time, but I think it's incumbent on designers and urbanists and landscape architects now, especially at a period like we're in right now where there's less development going on, to get ahead of that challenge and to begin to propose and think about uh, more progressive models uh, so that when things come back, um, if they ever come back, which I imagine they will, I hope they, they do they in will. some form, uh, that we will have already been well into the conversation of, of what we, again, want this city to, uh, to feel like, to be like, and to develop like. Thank now you Now, my question much. is the following. is about the, the moving of the people inside the, a building, or even within a neighborhood. Certain buildings foster the people to meet, to bump around each other as they go, or the buildings hinders that. And uh, that's part of architecture. I, I, I want to, if you could talk a little bit about are that. Are you talking about inside the buildings or outside of the buildings? Both, inside and outside. Very important question for certainly our work in the housing projects, because uh, one, of, one of the things that we began to realize and discover as we started to work with those projects. These, pr- these projects are for individuals who are formerly chronic, what are considered chronically homeless. And the definition of that, the number of years you have to be, I would think that chronically homeless was about a week on the street, but you have to be on the street for years to be considered chronically homeless, which is a whole other, I think, <laughs> a whole other uh, uh, issue. Um, But what we realized was that uh, because of many of these individuals' length of time on on the street, in the public realm, uh, constantly exposed and and visible, uh, exposed um, uh, physically and psychologically, that in almost every case over those years that uh, the only way of counteracting it, when, when we live, the majority of us live, we have a more uh, interwoven relationship between our public and private lives. And, and there's a real argument to the fact that you can't have one without the other. And you certainly can't have a public life with the ability, without the ability to have also a, a deeply personal and, 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 um, and distinct private life as well. And when that's taken away, uh, what, what you find is that many of those individuals 
create that private life, a kind of shell uh, that is intense and thick uh, and, and relentless in, in a psychological way that they turn inside themselves. And in the previous models, the SRO model of those buildings, uh, the, the typical model was um, a double-loaded corridor, which in our, well, you know that from ho like a hotel where you, you walk down the corridor and there are, there are units on both sides, rooms on both sides, and it's just an endless corridor that has doors on both sides. So what would happen is most people would come in from the street, get in the elevator as quickly as they could, hoping that nobody else was there, go up to their floor and make a beeline to their rooms and wouldn't be seen again until they had to come back out. That was a place that actually, I thought, architecture and its capacity to change the model of interaction was, uh, uh, could have a real effect. So in the buildings that, right from the beginning, in, uh, the Rainbow Apartments was the first, and the Carver, uh, the second one that just finished recently, it's a, a round building or kind of sprocket-shaped building immediately adjacent to the 10 freeway. It's hard to miss if you go by. It's about 15 feet away. But, um, and the third project we're doing, Star Apartments, we're continuing to develop this as an idea. One of the real, uh, one of the most uh, important ways in which we changed that typology was to uh, make all of the apartments single-loaded uh, and all facing a common courtyard. Those buildings are, for the most part, five stories. They're one floor of in that building, one store of services and ground floor and lobby and then five floors of apartments. And you walk out from your, your apartment onto a balcony and that balcony is, is really the corridor that connects you around either to stairs or to the ele uh, elevator. And when you come out, you're immediately a part of that larger space, that larger semi-public space. And it's not that we're trying to immediately imagine that the architecture is going to make uh, a, a series of individuals uh, capable of, of complete public interaction. But I, I believe, I, I thought, and I, I think it's, it's really bearing out, that if you could create a kind of uh, interstitial or semi-public uh, realm, that you might be able to, you, that the architecture could be involved in allowing people to uh, renegotiate their public and private lives. And uh, to do that by literally just coming out of, of making the circuit from the lobby to your apartment, and then eventually to begin to use more of the common and community spaces, uh, including the courtyard. So in that sense, movement and the choreography of movement or thinking about somebody's movement as having uh, a therapeutic quality and a spatial quality in the architecture uh, was something that, that uh, the buildings we've been doing in are, are heavily invested in. So in that sense, it is very much a part of the design. From an, out, from an exterior standpoint, I think, well, that's, that's changing as well. I wouldn't say that movement is, is so much an I, uh, a determining way in which that we're thinking about the buildings, but there is an unfolding story in the three buildings that we've done. If you look at those three buildings. The first was Rainbow Apartments, and there that building is uh, a part of the, the larger street wall. Like all, it's an infill project for the most part, although it has this interior space. And, and there's a very visible lobby 
and you can see the stairs that lead up to the courtyard, but I don't think we, were, we did as, as good a job there as I wanted to do. I was very critical of, of what we achieved on that ground level. Most of the, the service providers, the social service providers are on that ground floor, but we did have, we were really challenged by money, uh, by the budget in that project. And one of the things that we lost was more transparency, more, more glass to see into, into the building. And so um, I struggled with that. In the second project uh, it, at Star Apartments, which is the one right by the highway, one of the things that is very characteristic of that site is that it's right by the highway, by the elevated 10 freeway. And in that building, as opposed to all of those community functions being on the ground floor, instead, we, I designed that, we designed that so that those, those spaces uh, spiraled up through the building so that all of the social spaces were more dispersed in the building, so that you didn't go to just one place to have social interaction and then another place for your apartment. And one of the most important spaces in that building, one that is now finally really getting used, um, because the building has now just been fully occupied. Uh, they occupy these buildings in stages so that they can um, understand how the community is starting to emerge in, in the building, is the laundry room and the TV room. Really, we combined those two because they're uh, mutually supportive uh, uh, activities. But that space is at the level on the third floor of the 10 freeway, which is elevated at that point. And it becomes a kind of, um, as much of a front porch in Los Angeles as I think you can have. Uh, one that communicates uh, directly with the uh, passerbys on the highway and conversely that the people on the highway have the opportunity to see that community and to see very deeply into the building. In that way, movement and, and the realities of the kind of movement in a city like Los Angeles uh, is, is having a, a, a real effect again on the way that I thought about uh, the role of public and private in, in those buildings. In, in the Star Apartments, we're trying to take that further because it's the first time we're able to do more mixed use. Um, there's a retail component, a real frontage on the street. Um, so it's not just, it's not the lobby only, it's not the service providers, uh, but is actually what we, will what we hope will be a, a more conversant and more... Um, more traditional uh, type of activity on the street itself. And then there's other things going on with the building um, in terms of the units themselves that I think will be, will be quite uh, startling in terms of, of what's trying to be achieved uh, as the next step in that model. But just at the level of the street itself, um, I think it's quite radical or will be quite radical. When it's the less affluent client or the organizations working on behalf of less affluent clients is when you're making this argument that um, luxury doesn't have to be defined as that which only a few can afford mm -hmm. um, are, you, are you the architect and is it up to designers to go to the city or go to these communities to tell them I can build this for you for this amount and, mm -hmm. and this cheap and it can still be lovely or is it about these organizations saying this is all the money we have and expecting and hoping that designers and architects rise to the occasion? The only time I've, I've ever really come across that, uh, that hope that this is all the money we have and I hope you can knock it out of the park 
has been uh, with potential projects that uh, we would all consider much more traditional, um, uh, well-funded well projects, um, where, uh, where there's just a different sense of, of the economy um, and, and the role of architecture and what, what architecture uh, does, in fact, cost and what, um, uh, what it provides. Uh, I've been fortunate, I've been very fortunate in that I've always been approached uh, to do these projects, that there's something in, um, there's something that my clients have seen in, in my work and maybe the approach or the thinking that leads them to believe that they, this potentially would be a good relationship uh, and that it makes sense for their project. And I, um, I am deeply indebted to them for believing that and for making that equation uh, on their own. Uh, maybe, and given what's going on in the economy, maybe I should start looking more, <laughs> uh, looking, <laughs> looking harder. But, um, but I, I, I think that, I don't think that there's any project that is, and, and, and I think I, I want to dissuade um, everybody in thinking that in a sense, for instance, these projects at, at Skid Row are low-budget projects versus high-budget projects because I just I don't look at it that way. I don't think that there is... Yes, at some point there is too little money. There's not enough money to build a building. There's just a... There's a there, is pro, there's a threshold that you can't go below because, in fact, nobody wants to work for nothing uh, over the course of, 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 of uh, a period of time. So there's there's a um, there's a self uh, balancing economic equation that I think that happens in anything. I don't think that there is too little money in any project, as long as in my case I can't speak for everybody. I can't speak for all architects out there, um, for all designers out there. In my uh, in, for my case, for the culture of of, of me and my office. Uh, we as a group believe that uh, it's what's more important. As long as, as, long as there's a, a real and consequential conversation to be had about how, what, the, what the value equation is uh, and where architecture, um, that architecture is, there's an ambition for that, whatever that means, and that there, there, are, there are real and complex cha challenges to take on and that there is uh, at least some belief in our role as architects to be able to navigate those value decisions uh, and to, at the end of the day, produce uh, a form that is uh, uh, able to balance all of those challenge in, challenges in a resonant and, um, and, uh, and positive way, a progressive way. If, if they're up for that, uh, then that's as perfect an equation as uh, you might imagine if somebody came to you and said, uh, we have a boatload of money, do what you want. Because I think we challenge and are challenged uh, by the, that same uh, set of, of engagement rules with a client, whether they have 
have a lot of money or don't have a lot of money. Uh, I, to me, that's the ground rule. Uh, and uh, it really is the set of ground rules for, for uh, being involved in projects. And in that sense, I've been, I do feel remarkably fortunate that uh, our clients have been, have been up for that, that ride. Thank you so much. Thank you.